Okay, welcome all to Kabbalah Cafe. This is our brand new series. The series is entitled Spiritual Surrender, which, will, which I will explain in a moment. But before we get into the name of the series and the new book that we're studying, the new text, I want to point out a few things that I think is very important, obviously, in the times that we're in. I think that everybody has been... Um, I don't know what that means. Right. <laughs> I, sometimes it thinks that I summoned it, and I did not summon it. S-I-R-I. <laughs> Whatever. Moving along. So... Um, you know, obviously what's, what's on our hearts and our minds is what's going on in Israel and the Holy Land. And first of all, we pray for the safety and security of our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land and wherever they may be found. We pray for the safe return of all those that were taken. We pray for the end of conflict and um, the, the era of peace. That's what we all pray for, Mashiach. Um, and I was thinking in the context of this week's Torah portion, when I say this week, I mean, you know, Sunday begins, we already get ready for the next Torah portion. This week's Torah portion is Noah, right? Or Noah, right? So it's like, you know, you need to build an ark. I know a guy. All right. Anyway, so Noah was the, that's the meme, right? Noah was the guy who I see behind me. They're, they're, they're taking apart the sukkah, right? So this week is about building an ark. They're taking down a sukkah. It's happening. Tools are out and wood is being uh, moved around. It took them 120 years to build the ark. 120 years. And what was the point? The point of the 120 years was in order to kind of rally the troops, to in- inspire people to improve their ways. Um, what's important to recognize is that, you know, however you slice the narrative, the bottom line is the Torah is telling us, the Bible is relating the truth that, um, that evil has an expiration date. In other words, that, that, that nefariousness eventually, some way or another, comes to an end. And so we hope, of course, that all evil, all horror in the world come to an end. Certainly the ones that, um, that we've seen recently that affect our family, literally and figuratively, uh, should come to an end. The terror, the horror, the pain, the suffering, the bloodshed. Also, it's very, I think what's, uh, what's of note is what um, the Torah says a few, a few things. So number one, when you build an ark, instead of drowning in the flood, you end up floating on top of the water. Right? That's the difference between having an ark and not having an ark. So Kabbalah says that um, the world can sometimes feel like, uh, like, like, like a flood. We're inundated with, uh, with all sorts of stresses and anxieties and, and concerns. We build an ark, then we can, we can find a safe haven and, 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 and have the ability to... Um, to be okay. What is an ark? In Hebrew, the, ark, the word for ark is teva. Teva in Hebrew also means word. And so the deeper significance, good morning, good morning. The deeper significance is that how are we safe? Ignore the long extension cord, <laughs> as, as I pointed out. So the, the idea is, is that um, as long as we are able to um, find space within the word, right, whether that's the word of Torah or the word of prayer, or the word even of, of mitzvah, of good deeds, then we are, we're able to, um, to find safety and shelter in those spaces and not get inundated by the, by the anxieties, but on the contrary, float above. And one more thing about the architecture of the ark is that God tells Noah, he says, Sohar ta'asalateva. He says, you shall build or you shall create or make a sohar for the ark. Well, the obvious question is, what's a tzohar? Tzohar is, a, is an interesting word. It's not a common word in 
biblical and in the biblical lexicon. So what is Tzohar? So the classic biblical commentary, Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, he gives two explanations or two, yeah, two, two, he offers two options as to what Tzohar means. Either Tzohar is a window or Tzohar is a precious gem that was radiant and luminescent. So again, two options. Either it's a window or it's a gem. What does that, what does that mean exactly? So if it's a window, it was kind of like a skylight. Probably not a good idea to make an open window when it's raining. I'm just saying, probably not a great idea. But it's kind of like a skylight to bring in light from the outside. According, that's the first opinion. The second opinion that Rashi cites is that it's a, it's a gem that somehow, I don't know how this works, somehow was able to shine on its own. And when we talk about shining on its own, what we mean is it's, it's the idea of the, the light that is, um, that is shining from inside. Now, how could a stone shine? Maybe it was that light came in from a skylight and then refracted and reflected in the stone and then created more, um, more radiance. It's, it's possible. But I would say like this. I think that spiritually, these are two forms of light. There's the light that's on the outside and then there's the light that's on the inside. There's the light that's on the outside, so that light's always there. And in order to be, in order to enjoy that light, we have to create openings to allow the light in. So if we are closed to the light, then although the light's out there, we might never feel it, see it, or benefit from it. So what it takes is to create a window, to create an opening. Now, sometimes we create the window. Sometimes we break ourselves open from ego and other things that close us in to be open to the light. Sometimes life does that to us. So it can either be self-generated or perhaps, you know, life generated, um, standing at the, um, at the uh, I guess, the Solidarity Rally Tuesday night over here in City Springs, you know, shoulder to shoulder with thousands and thousands of, of people in support of Israel, I found it, you know, very powerful to, to see, first of all, see so many people in support, of, uh, in support of Israel, and also to, you know, reconnect with a lot of people that I haven't seen in, in a while. I thought it was really beautiful. Um, and it kind of struck me the idea that's that, that, and we never look for these things, but when kind of things happen that break us open, light can come in. Again, this is not justifying horror. This is just saying the reality is that when we are broken, right, when we're broken open, life breaks us open, it does, light does, light does come in. That's one point. And, but then that, that's all the window element. The other element is the, the self, like the gem, the light that is generated from within, the light that we generate and that we can generate. And I think that's equally as important. It's important to be open to the light outside of us, but it's also equally important to, it's also important to, to generate light from within. And that means, you know, doing, uh, doing mitzvahs, um, studying Torah, prayer, encouraging some, being kind to someone. And I, I will say personally that I've had um, many encounters this past week of people um, either calling, texting, or offering support. Um, and this Friday, Friday, two days ago, I'm in Kroger picking up some stuff before Shabbos and a woman comes over to me in, I don't know, in a random aisle and she is very emotional and she says, you know, I'm not Jewish, I'm Christian, but I, I support you and, and I love Israel and I feel so terrible for what's going on and I want you to know that we support you and we love you, etc. And she's like super emotional. I got emotional. It was just a very powerful experience. And it's, I think, I think it's, it's kind of these, um, these moments of humanity where you realize that there is light, 
it's not just evil, there is light out there, and, um, and, and our job is to capitalize on the light. Certainly our job here. If we were in, you know, on the front, that would be maybe we would have a different job. But here, our job is light, that's for sure. All right, so those are two points of light, outside, from without, and from within. Um, now I want to segue over to our, our new series. Our new series is called um, Spiritual Surrender. And um, I chose that title and the topic because I thought it would be a powerful conversation. And just to kind of set uh, a bit of a, a, of a, you know, a bird's eye view on, on Kabbalah study. In, in Kabbalah, when you're studying Kabbalistic texts, there are really two forms of texts that are um, available for study. We would call that Haskalah and Avoda. What are these two words? Haskalah means um, more theoretical Kabbalah, philosophical Kabbalah. Kabbalah speaks about ideas and realms and worlds and kind of you know, spiritual dimensions. And then you have avoda. Avoda means work or service or action. You have Kabbalah that's more along the lines of avoda. What that means is Kabbalah that is designed to inspire action and to really shape the way we day in, day out, do what we need to do. So it's less about the philosophy and more about, let's go, right? Rallying the troops, as it were. This discourse that we're going to study, this mystical text that we're going to study, um, that we're beginning today, is of the latter category. It's less Haskalah, it's less theoretical. It's not like the theory of Kabbalah. It's about integrating this into our lives and really connecting with it in a, in, a, in a genuine, authentic way. And I thought it would be a great text to study after the holidays, because after all the inspiration of the month of Tishrei, which is a month filled with emotional um, highs, I, don't know, I wouldn't say lows, but just an emotional um, uh, roller coaster. You have the somber days of Rosh Hashanah, certainly Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Then you have the joyous days of Sukkot, uh, so what better way to kind of you know, move away from that month of, of strong emotion with a text that will hopefully drive action and implementation of, that, of, that, of those feelings? Because feelings are good, but feelings are better when they drive action. Otherwise, they're wasted feelings. So today is Rosh Chodesh Cheshven. The first day, well, it's... It's complicated, Jewish calendar. <laughs> complicated. It's the 30th day of Tishrei, but it's still the first day of Rosh Chodesh of Cheshven. Again, super complicated, but here's the deal. Tishrei is the month of the high holidays, right? First month of the year. And then you have the next month, which is this month, which is the month of Cheshven. It's also called, sometimes, Mar Cheshven. Mar meaning like maror. What does maror mean? Bitter. Bitter. It's called Mar Cheshven. Bitter Cheshven, which is not a great title for a month. It's like... Well, you know what? It's like you're talking to Cheshvan. It's like, you know what you are? You're bitter. It's like, whoa, that's kind of offensive. The reason why it's called that is because it starts getting cold. In the Northern Hemisphere, this is when winter it starts getting colder. It starts getting darker earlier. Right? It's getting cold and dark. There are no holidays in this month. After a, a month filled with it's every other day, there's a holiday, if not every day. So now the month of Cheshvan has zero holidays. No holidays. It's kind of like... I always liken it to, at least in my head, maybe I've expressed this before in classes, but I liken it to, you know, what happens after the curtains close, right? After the party's over. It's like, let's say a couple gets married 
And so there's a lot of excitement. There's, you know, there's dating, there's the engagement, there's getting ready for the wedding, there's the wedding, there's, you know, the ceremony and the party and then the honeymoon. And there's all, all these moments of excitement. But then once everything is done, like all of the parties, once everything is done, so then the couple moves in or whatever, they live their life. And the party's over. Hold on, that sounded wrong. No, the party's not over, but the... Ex- the extrinsic party is over. In other words, no one's, there's no mariachi, is that the right word? Band playing for you. There's no like, there's no, there's no, uh, you know, there's no cake. Every, maybe there is, but. But there's a rest. Exactly. You're just living your life. When I say just, not to minimize it. But now you're living your life. Now it's real. Because when, when the music, you know, when the curtains close and the, the lights turn out and whatever, now it's real life. So it's almost like you have a whole month of Tishrei. It's all exciting. It's all like extrinsically. It's, it lifts you up. And now it's like, okay, so now let's live with God for a month. <laughs> like taking down the sukkah behind you? Oh, like taking down the sukkah. But it's like after the sukkah's down. <laughs> That's still exciting. <laughs> it's still on some level. Tishrei is completed. Exactly. That it's, still goes on. It still goes on. Every, everything is over. It sounds so negative. I don't mean this negatively, but all the fluff is over. Now it's, now it's real. So you're back to real life. Marcheshvin, this month is actually the most important month. Tishrei, it's easy to be on a high. It's easy to be inspired. The question is Marcheshvin. Now it's getting tough. Now, now you, have to really, you have to really care. It's easy to care when there's a lot of noise. Now you have to really care because you care. So that's that, and that. So I thought, what a, what better text to study than a text that speaks about how to generate an authentic relationship with God when things aren't so so exciting, and that leads me directly into an introduction for this text. I want to give the historical introduction or backdrop for this text, and then tell you thematically what we're doing here in this text, which is going to be amazing. So number one, historically, this discourse was taught in the year. Uh, the Jewish year, 5666, Tough Reish Samach which corresponds to the, to the um, uh, English year, English year? Uh, Gregorian year? Gregorian year, um, named after Gregory, maybe? <laughs> Must be Gregory. <laughs> we call him Greg. Anyway, so it's uh, it, uh, corresponding to the year um, 1905. Now, here's the cool thing about this. The discourses of the year 5666, Tafresh went throughout more than a year of discourses. And each one, they were, um, what would be a good term? Serialized? Is that the right term? Where one leads to the next? Sequential? But it's kind of like a series. It's kind of, but, you, but now, well, it came out one at a time, but now you can binge it. It's amazing how this works because the whole book is there. If you want, you can binge it in one sitting. I'm kidding. It's a ma- I wish I would have brought my copy. It's the original Hebrew. It's a massive, thick, dense, incredible volume. It begins, the first discourse is Rosh Hashanah, and every, pretty much every week there's another discourse that came out that, in, in this, in this um, series, series, um, in the sequence series, and it talks about everything from the purpose of creation to, you know, how to wake up in the morning and get what you need to get done, done. And so it talks about like, the theory and the practice and everything in between. It's, an incre- it's one of the classic works of, of Jewish mysticism, you know, explained in a, in a, in a, in a, in a very um, 
relatable way. We study it studied in yeshivot in in you know Jewish school in, in uh, Jewish schools in uh, higher levels of Jewish academies. Um, this is something that I studied um, in my uh, you know back in the day when I was in yeshiva, and it's something that's very a very powerful thing. I'm excited to study this with you. It's something I've never taught before. This is the only of the entire series of discourses, and there's many 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 discourses in this series. There's only one that's been translated into English. That's what we're studying together. This is kind of cool. Everything else is locked in the Hebrew. By the way, in case you want to know, this was all handwritten manuscripts until it was published, not handwritten. If you want to see the original handwritten manuscript of which this is taken from, that is it. Now, this is obviously not the original size. It was a little bit larger, but it wasn't that much larger. This is very, um, it's almost hard. I bet, I bet from across the room, Shana, you probably, Emerald. Yes, I would say it probably does not look like text. Probably just looks like, like a pattern on a page. Um, oh, let me make sure you guys can see this online. I didn't hold it specifically up to the camera. My apologies. Hold on. Oh, I'm getting, getting there in one second. Can you guys see that? No, no, I see it. It's, yeah, it's coming up. Anyway, imagine if you made a mistake. How awkward. <laughs> Back when everything was handwritten. You have to start again. Um, okay, so this is authored by the fifth Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dovber Schneerson, who, um, who lived in, I think, where did he live then? Maybe Lubavitch? He later on moved to Rostov. Uh, anyway, back, back in the old country. And um, this, was the, when it came out, it was an instant classic. Again, this is one of the, this book, Tafri Samavav, these, the series of discourses is known as like, like the creme de la creme of mystical um, uh, conversation. And the discourse that we have in front of us, the one that's been translated, the one out of dozens and dozens that was of this series that was translated into English, speaks again very practically and very, very pointedly at what it is that, uh, that is called upon us. And in order to introduce the theme of this discourse, because now I've told you about the historical background. In, or, in order to introduce the theme of this discourse, I want to share with you the following um, interesting de um, detail. And that is that throughout the Torah, we find multiple name changes. We find Ab Abram, 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 changed to Abraham. In Hebrew, it's Avram, changed to Avraham. He got an extra hey. Sarai, was changed to Sarah or Sarah. Um, that's another name change. Uh, who else? Who's who's? Oh yeah, but that's I'm saving that one for last. <laughs> that's that's the one we're going to focus on. Um, and there are other. Oh, Joshua. He was originally Hosea. I don't know what the English one for that is. Then he was changed to Shalom Shalom to Yehoshua. So there are name changes throughout Scripture, throughout um, the biblical text. And the Talmud goes so far to say that anyone who calls Avraham, Avram, this is a special treat. You lot great to see you. Welcome. First Kabbalah Cafe class? Wow. All right. This is exciting. So the, so the Talmud says uh, that whoever calls Avraham, Avram violates, uh, is, 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 you know, is, is reciting, is, is, is doing so erroneously and sinfully. Because once God, once the name is changed, you don't go back to the old name. It's the way it is. Sarah, Sarah, Avraham, Abraham, 
Yoshua, Joshua, those are the new names. We don't revert back to the old ones. Now, of course, when you're studying Torah and you encounter Avraham before the name change, so you read it before, but, but now when we refer to these biblical figures, we don't refer by the old name, only by the new name. Great. There's one exception, and that is Jacob. Jacob, Yaakov, right? His name, his birth name is Yaakov, Jacob. At a certain point in time, in his life story, his name is changed to Yisrael or Israel. But what's, what's wild is that we find that the Torah switches back and forth between Jacob and Israel, between Yaakov and Yisrael. And so that leads the Talmud to conclude that one is allowed to call Yaakov by either name. Why? Because Torah itself, God himself, calls Yaakov by both names interchangeably. Which doesn't really clarify things, it only raises more questions. Why is it by this guy that he has two names? Everyone else, once the name was changed, it was over. And here, he has both. So the, why? So, so the answer is because, well, well, God uses both names. Well, that just shifts the question onto God. Why does God, why does the Torah use both names? And so I want to share with you, there are many different answers given, I want to share with you the mystical answer. The answer that's brought in Kabbalah, in Jewish mystical thought, and elaborated on in Hasidic discourses, is that each represents, each name, Yaakov and Yisrael, Jacob and Israel, each represents a different modality of divine service. In other words, it's not like an old way and a new way in which the new way um, replaces the old way and therefore you don't revert back to the old way. These are two simultaneously, simultaneously valid approaches to divine service. There's the modality of Yaakov, the modality of Yisrael. There's the Jacob and the Israel. And both are valid. Both are legit. Both are divine. Both are spiritual paths of service. And the truth is, in each of us, they both exist simultaneously. And that's why, even though Jacob gets a new name, he still has the old name. Because both personas exist. So when we examine what Yaakov represents, Jacob, and what Yisrael, Israel represents, will have deep insight into the nature of who we are, but also the nature of, of our divine service and really also how we evolve. No, it's not really evolve. How we vacillate between various spaces in our divine connection. So let me explain. Why was Jacob named Jacob? Why was he called Yaakov? Like biblical, when you read the Torah, they said his mother named him, they named him Yaakov, Jacob. Why? He was holding his brother's heel. There were twins. By now you know my joke about twins, right? What do you call twins? Woomates. <laughs> even, even after they come out? Before. <laughs> so Esau, Esau was born first. Yaakov apparently did not like that. And so it says, the Torah says, this is straight up uh, Bible, it's not Medrash. It says he was holding on to his brother's <coughs> heel. The Hebrew word for heel is Akev. So Yaakov, Akev, Yaakov, it's the, you know, it's the same word essentially. So he was the heel holder, holding on to his brother's heel. That's his name, Yaakov. When does he get the name Yisrael, Israel? You remember? He crosses, so right, so this is way later on in his life. So that's the origin story. That's how he gets the, the original name. 
Then later on in life, he's, he's, he's older, he's, you know, he's an adult now. He has spent 20 years away from his family. Yaakov, Jacob, has spent by Laban, his uncle. He's now returning back home and about to encounter his brother. The Torah tells us that he leaves some, uh, he, he crosses back, he crosses his family over a stream, and then he goes back to get some stuff that he left behind. And as he's back alone by himself, on the other side of the stream, river, whatever it was, brook, he encounters a man. Vayeavik ish, it says, Vayevater, Yaakov levado. Jacob remained alone. Vayeavik ish imo, and a man wrestled with him, ad alot until daybreak, till the break of dawn. Which is weird, because if he's alone, then who's wrestling with him? Many commentaries on that. The simple meaning, of course, is he's alone without his family. And, but, he, but there's another guy there that he's wrestling with. According to the way we know the, the biblical narrative, this is not a man, this is an angel. And whose angel? It's the guardian angel of Esau. And they wrestle all night until the morning when this angel had a shift up in heaven. And the angel says to Yaakov, to Jacob, let me go. He says, I'll only let you go if you bless me. The angel says to him, what's your name? He says, Yaakov. He says, no longer will your name be Yaakov, but rather Yisrael. Because you, Sarita, wrestled, struggled, whatever, with battled angels and men, and you prevailed. Yisrael, the name Yisrael, is a name that connotes victory. So Yaakov, is the guy who's holding on to the other guy's heel. It's the scrappy persona. It's the wrestler. It's the wrestler. And who's Yisrael? Who's Israel? Israel is not the wrestler. Israel is the name that signifies? Yeah, victory. But it's not just, it's not just victory. It's kind of being above or being done with the struggle. Past, post-struggle. Post-struggle. So Yaakov is... like an overcomer? Yes. Yes. An overcomer. The one who's overcome. In other words, there's the stage of the struggle, and then there's a stage in which you're past the struggle. The struggle is in your rearview mirror. That's Israel. That's Israel. So Jacob is, when you're amidst the struggle, you're, you're actually grabbing onto the other guy's heel. Right? You're, you're on the mat, and Yisrael is, it's over. You're past, the, you're past the conflict, you're past the, the struggle. Which already right now, if you think about this spiritually, we should already be able to understand why it is that Yaakov and Yisrael are two simultaneous names. Because each of us has areas in which we struggle, and each of us has areas in which we're past the struggle. I mean, hopefully. We don't struggle with everything. Even areas that perhaps once upon a time we did struggle with, there are at least some areas in which we are past that struggle, in which we've overcome that challenge. We're no longer play. I don't know if plagues right word. We're no longer um, anguish, more than anguish. We're no longer um, torn by that struggle. We're past it. Now, you know, certainly we would think that the goal would be to have to be Yisrael all the time, right? To be Israel all the time. 
in, in every area, to have overcome all the challenges. But life, life is not always so easy. And so inevitably, even when we've overcome one challenge and we've now achieved, you know, we've gotten the, uh, the trophy and, then, and, the, and, the, and the thing says, your new name is Yisrael, you're still Yaakov. <laughs> you're still a Yaakov. You're not a Yisrael in every area. You're a Yisrael in this area. Sure, you got your trophy. You, you passed the test or whatever it is. You're past that struggle. However, there are other areas in which you can get, you can get pulled right back into something else. And so that's why the Torah, again, mystically, that's why the Torah reverts back and forth between the two names of Yaakov and Yisrael, between Jacob and Israel, to tell us, to remind us that even after we've achieved spiritual victories, that doesn't mean that we are not susceptible to struggle. Can I also think that name changes for Abraham and Sarah were accepting more of God? His like you said wasn't bad. He was doing the struggle, and he he'd already accepted God. So maybe that's why they all said they're back. Could be, yeah. I mean, there are different. There are a lot of different like angles on that, but this is one in which I think it's, it's it reminds us that we can achieve. You know, we can um, we can we can experience breakthroughs. But even as we do so, we will also have areas in which the breakthrough is not there. In other words, that's a normal part. It's a normal reality of life in which we're living these two worlds almost, the Yisrael and the Yaakov simultaneously. So to think that we're only Yaakovs and there's no hope for us, that's, that's very depressing. To think that we should be all Yisraels and never have a challenge is, is not realistic. So it's kind of like this more realistic view of there will be areas in which we've made a lot of progress and areas in which we haven't made a lot of progress. And that's just a part of life. You know, even the, yeah. Um, when um, Jacob at the time uh, grabbed the, uh, this angel was going to like melt like the, the Wicked Witch when the sun came up, so he needed to get back or something like that. So. I, it's, I, I don't know exactly, I don't know. So <laughs> Jacob's like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to. I'm holding you down, right. So the sun comes up, did he say until you tell me who you are? Like, who the heck are you? What's your name? Who says to who? Did, Israel, did, did Jacob ask him that? Jacob asks him his name. And he never gave him an answer. Does not All give him the answer. Oh, by the way, you have a new name. And Jacob's like, oh, okay, thank you. And he forgot his question? I don't know if he got his question, but, uh, you know. If, if, but he never got an answer. If, if, if an angel doesn't, doesn't give you an answer, what are you going to do? <laughs> Twist his arm? I mean, I guess. At least. not really him to go to pray. Apparently, but I, I think instead of finding out his name, he got to know his own yeah, name. I think also that's, you know, that brings up an interesting point is sometimes you try to get to, you know, we're trying to figure out someone else, whereas where the real challenge is figuring out ourselves. That's, anyway, that's, we, can, we can talk about that piece also. But I, I'll tell you, this idea that even after we've achieved breakthroughs, we're still human, because that's kind of like what the message is, is also reflected in a powerful, um, powerful area of Jewish law. So the Torah tells us that a high priest is not permitted to marry a widow. Who says? A Kohen Gadol, a high priest, cannot marry a widow. The question is, why not? It seems like very random. A high priest cannot marry a widow. Why? Not for all Kohanim? No, all Kohanim, no. All, no, no, the widow is oh, not, not, yeah. Grusha, right. So, um... Is that the brother's widow? Yeah, no widows. So, the question is, like, what, what's, what's the deal with that? So I once saw a commentary that said the following. You know, the high priest was unique 
in that he would go into the Kodesh HaKadashim, the Holy of Holies, once a year, on the holiest day of the year, which is Yom Kippur. So on the holiest day of the year, the holiest space on earth, the holiest representative of the Jewish people would go, we'd have the, the, the coalescence of time, space, and soul, and the holiest of all three converging. Holiest time, holiest space, holiest person. So the Kohen Gadol would go in and offer prayers. And the prayers that the Kohen Gadol would recite would be very powerful and would take effect. And so we are concerned that the high priest might have his eyes on a married woman, go into the Kodesh HaGadashim on Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur, the holiest guy, in the holiest space, on the holiest day, be thinking about this woman and pray that the husband should die and the husband will die and then he would marry her. And so we say, don't even try it because you still won't be able to marry her if you're a high priest. But you understand what's going on here? According to this commentary, the, we even suspect the high priest of maybe having inappropriate thoughts in the Holy of Holies. What's the point? Not that, we're, not that the high priest is like uh, you know, a bum. The point is that even if you're a high priest, even if you are whatever, even if you're Yisrael, you're still a Yaakov also. Right? Human beings aren't immune to human things. And therefore, therefore, the Torah is reminding us with the Yaakov and Yisrael duality that every one of us can achieve greatness. You can be Yisrael. You don't have to struggle with this. You can overcome the struggle. But even as you do, there will likely be more areas of struggle. You're still not an angel. Reminds me of the story, the Hasidic story they tell. So um, the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, uh, is legendary for performing miracles. And one of those miracles that he would perform is called Kfitzat Haderach. What is Kfitzat Haderach? Teleporting, I guess. Yeah, well, literally means shortening. I think so jumping, shortening the way. Shortening the way. So they say that he would. The way he would travel is like this: he would take some of his students. They would go into a horse and buggy, buggy, carriage. Carriage sounds too fancy. I'm sure it was very horse and buggy, horse and buggy. Horse and, buggy. and he would tell the wagon driver, uh, "Yeah, do me a favor, turn around, turn backwards." And they would say, "Giddy up," or whatever they would say. I don't know what they would say. And the horses would begin moving. And they would start moving so fast that they would bridge space, kind of like teleportation, but in a, in a horse and wagon. And they would get from one place to another in miraculous time. Miraculous time. So the story goes. At one time, the horses were, on this, were in, this, in this space because the horses were going really fast. And the horses were thinking, wow, we're moving really fast. We must be like super horses. <laughs> and then the horses thought to themselves... Um, Wait, and we're passing all of the normal stops where we usually eat. So I guess we don't need to eat like horses. I guess we're like human beings that can take a little bit longer to eat. And then they kept on passing more of the rest stops, and they said to themselves, wow, we must not even be human. We must be angels, because angels don't eat at all. This is all going within the mind of the horses. Stay with me on this, on this, on this story. And so the horse is like, wow, we must have been transformed by the Baal Shem, by that holy rabbi, not only into super horses, not even into humans, but into angels who don't need any to eat at all. And then eventually they arrive in the destination and it stops and the horses are like, oh, we're hungry. And they go, yeah, like now we're horses. <laughs> so what's the moral of the story? Sometimes we feel very holy and we should feel holy. And maybe Tishrei this past month, maybe we felt, I mean, hopefully we felt holy. But we're also reminded that we're, uh, I don't want to, 
Uh, it sounds not nice. We're still horses. Nah. But we're still human. We're still horses. I mean, at the end of the day, we, there are still areas in which we struggle. Whatever that is for, for you know, every one of us have, has our own struggles. And I think that is the, the lesson of this month, which is, okay, we just had a month in which it's almost like an out-of-body experience. We had the, the high, you know, the joys and, and the moments of, uh, you know, solemn connection. We've had these incredible emotions throughout the month of Tishrei. And now it's the month of Cheshven. And now the, you know, the, the band has gone home and the lights are out and the cake has been, has been consumed and everything, you know, the, everyone's out of the tux and the wedding dress. It's all, the party's over. Now the question is, what do I need to work on? Right? What am I working on? And so the two words I want to share with you that kind of capture these, um, these uh, um, forms of avodah, of service, what I would call spiritual pleasure versus spiritual surrender. And as you know, that series I'm, I'm, I've called spiritual surrender. But there are really two spaces, spiritual pleasure and spiritual surrender. What's the difference? Spiritual, surrend- sorry, spiritual pleasure is where you're excited about doing the mitzvah, about the spiritual experience. You're getting pleasure from that experience. You're getting excited about, or you are excited about studying Torah, about doing the mitzvah, about praying, about you know, helping someone else out. You're excited about the mitzvah. It's offering you pleasure. It's offering, you derive pleasure from it. You're excited about it. You want to do it. That's the spiritual pleasure. And that is the Yisrael persona. Excited about doing the right thing. But then there's the other persona. And that is where you're not so excited about it. At least part of you is really not excited about it. You would rather be doing something else. You know it's the right thing to do, but you'd rather be doing, if you're honest with yourself, you'd rather be elsewhere. And so it's a struggle. This is the Yaakov persona. It's a struggle. When you do it anyway, why do you do it anyway? Because you know it's the right thing to do. That's what we call spiritual surrender. Spiritual surrender is where you're not so excited about doing it, it's not like a source of, of, of like infinite pleasure for you. You're doing it because it's the right thing to do, because this is what you know you ought to be doing. This is what you know you must be doing. And so you surrender to the cause, whatever the cause is. You surrender to doing the right thing because it's the right thing. Now, if I ask you the question, which is a greater experience, when you're doing the right thing and, and you're excited about doing it, and you're doing it with pleasure and with joy and with you're fully present in that moment, or you're doing it because you know you have to do it, and so you're surrendering to it, so you're kind of like relinquishing yourself to it, but you're not really so excited about it. Which would you say is a higher experience? The former or the latter? Pleasure or surrender? Well, hold on, I was going there. But you would you would have said perhaps. <laughs> no, it's the right answer, but it's I was trying to set y'all up, but I think you're on to me. Right, so you would think... Right, but the, right, the count, I think what people, what we intuitively think is like, oh wow, if only I was excited about doing it, that would be so great. I would be, it would be, it would feel more seamless. It would be, I would feel more present in it. I would get it. I would understand it. I would be excited about it. I would you know, do it with, with, with a lack. I would do it perfectly. Whereas in the space of surrender, it's kind of like, you know, a big part of you is not even there. It's you're just surrendering to it, but it's not really at that point who who you are, at least the totality of who you are. And so, what? Yes, yeah, surrender could lead to pleasure, but as we'll discuss, um, as Shane is pointing out, 
as we'll see in this text, spiritual surrender, I guess I gave it away in the title of the book, uh, title of the series, spiritual surrender is actually on one level a greater um, experience than spiritual pleasure. Why? Because when we surrender, we are making it not about us. It's completely about the other, in this case, God. Right? When, it's, when, it's, when we're doing the mitzvah, whatever it is, because we want to do it, we're, we're getting pleasure, we're, we're excited about doing it. So on the one hand, that's great. That sounds like the ideal. It's like a person wakes up in the morning and they want to daven, they want to pray, they want to do a mitzvah. Like, can't get any better than that. That sounds like, <laughs> ding, 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 we have a winner. That's true. But the flip side is, that when that's the experience, then the question is, who are you serving? Are you serving God? Or are you serving yourself because you enjoy it? Now, it could be worse. You could be serving yourself in any number of ways. I mean, this should be the worst way to serve yourself, serving God. But one can argue that are you really in it for God or you're in it for yourself? If I'm excited about it, this doesn't make it bad, by the way. This is just, we're just kind of, you know, this was a BuzzFeed article, right? Serving God ranked. Like one way is, one way is when you're doing it because you enjoy it. That's great, but there's a little bit of ego in there as well. The other way, which is the spiritual surrender, is where you're not fully on, you're not fully committed to this. When I say committed, you're... You're struggling inside. You're the Yaakov. You're wrestling with yourself. By the way, I pointed out before that it says that Jacob was alone and he wrestled with a man. Well, some commentaries say this was a la Fight Club. I hate to give away the end of the movie. There wasn't anybody else there, right? I think that, right? That's, it's been a while, right? So he's fighting with himself. Yaakov is the persona of where you're fighting with yourself, Part of you wants to do it, part of you doesn't want to do it. Part of you wants to dab, and part of you is like, nah, God knows what I want anyway. <laughs> I need to tell him. Right, so, that, so the, the Jacob persona, the Yaakov persona, is, that, the, the, is, is the struggle. But if, and here's the, here's the big idea, but if we're able to somehow muster the courage and the energy to go ahead with what we need to do, in other words, surrender because, okay, look, I'm, I'm torn on this, but I know despite how I feel, despite my mixed emotions about it, I know that this is the right thing to do. And so therefore, I'm going to set myself aside and do it because it's the right thing. In that moment, one is asserting God above self. In a space of spiritual pleasure, one's own self is aligned with God, and that's beautiful. But the question is, who are we serving, ourselves or God? And it's not so clear. Whereas if a person is torn, if a person is still struggling with this, but does it anyway, out of a sense of commitment, sense of surrender, I'm doing this for you, not for me. In that case, it's about God and it's not about self. And on one level, not on all of us, but on one level, it's a greater form of of avoda, greater form of divine service. Yeah. Well, you could also be doing it out of guilt. I mean, mm. Correct. Correct. The guilt would probably be more of a negative emotion, 
So let's leave that one aside. Um, but so, so the really the two spaces that we're focusing on, the space of spiritual pleasure where we're excited, we want to do it, we find it enriching and meaningful. Like this mitzvah, I feel I get excited about doing this mitzvah, and so I'm doing it. That's great. That means that my pleasure or my excitement is aligned with divine will. That's fantastic. But the more I enjoy it, the more this experience is a little bit self-serving. And it's, I'm sharing this experience with God. So it's a little bit for you, but, but a little bit for me also. Whereas in a space of spiritual surrender, where I'm only doing this because, because of God. Like, I don't really want to do this. But I feel committed to do it because, you know, I, I, I appreciate God enough that I'm going to do it. So I'm surrendering to a, you know, for lack of a better term, to a higher power, right? But I'm not really so excited about it. In that case, it's almost like the full me is being offered in that experience, as opposed to retaining part of me when I'm enjoying it. Does that make sense? But you could also say you're hedging your bets. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, but but that's like uh, it's still like along the lines of the guilt persona. We're talking about someone who is who recognizes the the um, not not excited about the mitzvah, but recognizes that God is God, that the mitzvah is God's will. It's kind of like a relationship, right? Not every you you have two people in a relationship, and and they have different minds, different ideas, different feelings about things. They have different likes and dislikes, and so. If I, you know, if I'm making dinner and I make the stuff that I like, that you also like, that's great. But I'm also winning from that. But if I'm making you dinner, right, and I'm making what you like, and I don't really like it so much, but making it for you, one could argue, again, just everything has pros and cons. But on one level, it's more of an offering of self to do that. Yeah. Um, okay, now, let me give you another framing of this. There was a myth, there's a biblical mitzvah called Bikurim. What are Bikurim? Bikurim are, who knows? Offerings. Yeah, but what kind? First, offerings. first fruits. First. So if you were a farmer in the land of Israel, you would bring Bikurim, which are the first fruits. And uh, you would, so how would you know which the first fruits are? So when they began to ripen, you would tie like um, a string or whatever it is around that fruit. And then when they ripe, when they fully, I guess, came time to pick the fruits, whatever it is, you take all, all those first fruits and go to Jerusalem, go to the temple, and you would put them, it's interesting, the Torah says, put them in a basket. I mean, it's kind of obvious what you do, like carry a bunch of, you know, I don't know what that is. Not the Kroger bag. I feel like it's a dance. Right, not a Kroger bag, a basket. The Santa Batena, you put it in a basket, and, and, then, you go to the, and then, you, then you go to the temple with your fruit in a basket. The Talmud wants to know what happens with the basket. The Talmud doesn't leave any, any detail, um, any stone un, un, unturned. Return stones? I guess so. Is it returnable? Oh, so the question is about the basket. So imagine you're the farmer, you bring the fruits in a basket, and I guess you present it in the basket to the, uh, to the Kohen, but the, what happens to the basket? So wasn't the basket also needed to be like from a certain material? So no, like no. The rich one not going to be like fancy. Once, no, 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 actually, the Talmud says no. no. Listen to this. So the Talmud says, like this. if it's a gold or metal basket, a fancy basket, then the Kohen gives it back to the farmer. But if it's a simple wicker basket, then like of the poor farmer, 
then the coin keeps it. And you're thinking the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Unbelievable. The wealthy guy, he gets his basket back. And the, and the poor farmer, his basket's taken away. This makes no sense. You ready for Kabbalah? When your basket's of gold, not only that, when your basket's made of gold, there's too much ego in there. The Kohen doesn't accept that. The temple doesn't accept. That's not an offering to God. That's you. That's you. But when you're coming from a place of surrender, then, the, then everything, everything is an offering, including the basket. Isn't that beautiful? Even the basket is an offering when it's coming from a place of humility and surrender. The, the, the simple basket is also accepted. It's also part of the Bikurim. It's not a good thing that the, that, the, that the fancy basket gets returned. It means that part of it was an offering and part of it was ego, showing off. When it's a simple basket, the whole thing is an offering to God, surrender. So again, two modalities, spiritual pleasure and spiritual surrender. Spiritual pleasure means I'm excited about doing it. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not perfectly an offering to God. There's a little bit of ego. There's a little bit of me that I'm retaining in that experience. Whereas spiritual surrender is completely, seamlessly giving myself over, surrendering to God, and that all of that is to God. So since all of us are part of God anyway, even our ego, even the, um, the part that can get the, uh, you know, the, um, I guess, the, the good feelings about giving this, this offering, so even when you make dinner for your wife or your wife makes dinner for you, isn't there an expectation of, um, hey, there'll be peace in the family, they'll be, they'll be nicer, I'll, I'll have a better experience, I'll feel better myself because I'm doing this. Isn't it always an expectation that, you know, I, I will reach a point where I can experience all this uh, and, and realize the, the payoff while I'm doing it, but right now I can't. But I'm doing it as yeah, an investment. You're correct. So that so if you're so if you're surrendering for the relationship, then I think you're asking a question, is that surrender or is that pleasure? It's, it's surrender with an agenda. So now is it surrender or is it an agenda? So which one is it? That's a little bit more complicated. I think that Thank you. For, for the cost, right. But, then, but fasting is the only one. We all hate it, but in the end, we feel better at the end of the day. Yeah. So all of sure. have some... Some, some, phys- some personal benefit also. Yeah. Right. And again, I, I want to be clear that that's right. That I think, and what I think you're expressing and you're expressing is that having, like, ultimately deriving benefit, whether it's a feeling of satisfaction or connection or other sort of, for, uh, sorts of benefit, that doesn't make it trafe. That doesn't make it unholy. That doesn't make it unkosher. That could be a natural part of life. However, in speaking and thinking about in, in terms of, um, of, of, of our commitment to God, certainly this, this idea is um, more manifest when it comes to the surrender than the pleasure elements. Everyone has a copy. And I realize right now, guys, online crew, that I did not scan this in. There is no digital version of this that I could find, so I literally did old school um, copies on this, but I don't have a digital version, which means that y'all have to listen closely as I read. <laughs> but by next week, we will have the text scanned in. It was an oversight, I apologize. All right, so I'm gonna begin reading, and like p- 
pretty much every Hasidic discourse, it always begins with a biblical verse or a story that kind of um, uh, serves as the introduction to the text, to the main, to the main insight, to the spiritual insight. It's kind of like in Hasidic parlance, it's the passport that gets you into that space, into the, into the main conversation. Um, and, and as I told you, as we started, um, uh, you know, as I, as I gave, when I gave you the historical background of this text, I told you that it's a, it was a serialized thing that came out every week. So basically, there's every discourse begins with a verse or an analysis uh, from that week's Torah portion, and then it goes into the, the meat and potatoes of the conversation. So let's start again. Sorry, guys, about not having the text up, but I'll read it now. With the help of heaven, Shabbat Parshat Matot Masse. Five six six six. So this would have been. It would be interesting. I could actually look this up with a uh, with a Jewish calendar, Hebrew calendar converter. I could give you the English date of this, um, but I will tell you it was summer of 1906. The exact date I don't know. It's the summer of 06, not 2006. 1906, and it begins with a quote from that Torah portion, Matot Mase, a double portion, that speaks about. The, the, the tribes, two of the 12 tribes that asked Moses, requested permission to settle outside of Israel, not entering the Holy Land, but uh, settling uh, to the east of the Jordan River. Let's, uh, and there's a lot to talk about this, which we're going to get into in a second. Let me just read the verse, or the verses. The children, this is a quote from the, from the Torah. The children of Reuven and God, or Reuben and God, possessed much cattle. And they saw the land of Yazer. Yazer was one of the uh, nations or states or uh, regions outside of Israel to the east of the Jordan River. So they saw that land and behold, it was a place for cattle. It's great for raising cattle. Beautiful. And so they asked Moshe, they asked Moses, let this land be given to your servants as an inheritance. So very simply, this is from Numbers chapter 32, the Torah tells us about the request of these two tribes, Reuben and God. They're asking for permission to settle in this land. On the approach to the Holy Land, they essentially said, you know what? Right here is beautiful. We don't want to go any further. Let's settle right here. We want to settle here, and y'all can keep on going into the Holy Land, but we're, we're, we're content with this land right here. What's Moses' reaction? What does Moshe say? He says, are you kidding me? Don't you remember what happened 40 years before? 40 years ago, when we were about to enter Israel, I sent the spies. That was our last text that we studied, right? Moses sent the 12 spies, and they, see, they scout out the land for 40 days, and they come back, and they give a negative report, and they say, there's no way we can conquer the land. Let's not even try. And because, because of that, God got so upset. Lack of faith in God, God got so upset, as it were upset, whatever, that God said, you or all y'all are not going to go into the land of Israel. You're going to wander for 40 years and only your children will go into the land. And so now these very children, the next generation, Reuben and God, they're also saying we don't want to go into the land. Moses says, are you kidding me? We're repeating the same mess, repeating the same tragedy, repeating the same story. Don't you know what happened? And he, he, he just lays into them. This, don't you know what happened? Don't you remember what happened 40 years ago? Your parents did the same thing and we were punished for 40 years of wandering and now you're doing the same thing. You're repeating the same mistake. 
And they say, no, 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 God forbid. They clarify their position. They, ba- they essentially tell Moshe, Moses the following. Forty years ago, the issue was that the people didn't believe that God could help them conquer the land. We have no such lack of faith. We believe. We absolutely believe. What we're merely asking for is this land over here because it's great for cattle. That's it. It's a very pragmatic request. We have no issues of faith. We have no doubt that God will, um, will, uh, will, will deliver the land of Israel into our hands. That's not a question. All we want is a good place for our cattle to roam and be happy. So did they have a lack of belief that in the land that was promised there would be that's, space? That's, a, that's also a good question. I don't know. That's a good question. I, I don't have a good answer for that. I was thinking that also. The, um, oh, the question is, well, that, why didn't they believe that in Israel there would be a place for their cattle? They didn't go into Israel, see it was bad, and come back out. Right. They're like, this is great. This is great. It's like you're, you're driving up the highway. You have a reservation for a hotel somewhere three hours north. And you're like, you know what? This is great. Cancel that reservation. This is good. We're good right here. It's great. Got a swimming pool. It's got, you know, an exercise room. It's got, you know, internet, high-speed internet. This is great. Comfy beds. We're good. Right here. Now, one second. They further tell Moshe like this. To prove, to prove that we have no lack of faith in God, here's what we're going to do. We will leave our wives and children here and cattle here, but we, the men, we're going to join the other tribes in battle just to prove that we have no doubt in the ability to conquer the land of Israel. So we're not asking for this land because we're afraid. We're not trying to dissuade anyone else from going into the land. On the contrary, we're, we're believers, and we will go. we will go on the front lines. And Moshe says, okay, deal. If you agree to go into battle, the men, go into battle on the front lines, etc., with your brethren, then you can leave your wives and your children here and your cattle here. They can settle and that's it. Many different ways to understand this story. My favorite way, which is not coming up in this conversation, in this discourse, my favorite uh, spin on this story is that this was a statement of love for Moses. Why did they want to settle that land? Think about it. Where was Moses buried? Moses never went into Israel. Imagine if everyone went in and left Moses behind. These tribes were so in love with their leader. They concocted a story. That's why Moses got suspicious, because he realized something's fishy. It was fishy. It wasn't about the cattle. They loved Moses. They didn't want to leave him behind. They already knew that you yeah, that was already determined. Yeah, everyone knew that. At that, at that point, good question. At that point, it was already determined. That's after he hit the rock, and he had already been uh, decreed that he wasn't going to the land. So they said, ah, he's not going in. Uh, on second thought, we don't mind settling here. This is a great place for the cattle. They got great parks. But everybody knew he wasn't going into the rock. Yeah. No. He didn't want them to know. No, at some point, everybody knew. Was Mount Nebo in that area, or were they north of That's a good question. So I, I, like we would have to look. It wasn't too far, because this was already the final approach. This is Matot Masse. This is the end of Numbers. The book of Deuteronomy is all taking place in pretty much one location, at the border. So this is already, and this is the last portion of, of the book of Numbers. So already they're pretty much where Moses is going to pass away. It's in that vicinity. And so, again, they're asking to stay there. This is, 
this is not our, this is not this. This is just a beautiful explanation that I personally love that I can't help but think whenever I read the story and I can't help but share because I think it's really beautiful. But there is a flaw in that way of thinking. Because it's about the pleasure not to surrender. Turns out this is connected, I'm realizing now. Because they want to be next to Moses. But what does Moses want for them? It's like, do you love me? Because you love me. Do you want to... But it's love on whose terms? Yeah, but love on my terms means I want a relationship with you the way I define it. So if... so. Right, I love you on my terms means that I will define the nature of this relationship, which means that if you're here and I love you and I think that loving you means proximity to you, so therefore I'm going to stay here. I'm going to concoct a story to stay here. I'm going to you know, connive this situation to be here with you. Meanwhile, Moses, if you would really ask Moses, guaranteed, you know what he would say? I'm okay. Go. If you love Right. Surrender also means loving on their terms, not yours. Right. Yeah. They each get a plus. Right. Surrender, and you and you got something. Right. Right. Correct. But at least it's he's not the only one. Yeah, it's a rom com. It turns out it's a love story. We had no idea it's a love story. It's not cattle, it's love. Everything's a rom com. Everything's. Right? No, I can't bear to leave you behind. That's the story. It's at the airport. He comes running. She has her ticket. You know, what's going to happen? Is she going to come back? Is he going to. All right. 120. On his birthday, the 7th of Adar. Exactly. Uh, That's why we... Huh? Uh, how much 120? 175. Oh. But is it dog years or people years? No, people years. That's why we... No, it's people years. <laughs> By the way, we're going to get to 120 soon. The way things are trending, we'll get to 120 soon. We wish to this day, the Jewish wish for good health and life is to 120. Now, let's go back inside. Um, so we just quoted the verses. Reuven God asked, etc. for the land. Um, in the end... Back inside our text, second paragraph. In the end, Moshe told them, Moses told them, if you will go to war before God and the land will be conquered before God, then this land will be an inheritance for you. So he takes them up on the offer. They, he is obviously paraphrasing here, but in the middle, they were the ones that offered to go in first. He said, okay, yes, if you do that, if you will go to war with your other fellow tribes, then deal. Now, he asks a few questions here. And these questions are all addressed in the classic commentaries on Torah, but the point is not to ask the questions. The point is to get to a mystical insight that will then explain these on a spiritual level. So we need to understand, he says, why did they specifically, Reuven and God, these two tribes, choose the land that was on the other side of the Jordan? Why? Well, we know why. Had lots of cattle. Or because Moses was going to be buried there. But he asked the question nonetheless, because again, it's, it's opening up. Um, you always need a question to open up uh, an analysis. Furthermore, why did the inheritance of this land depend specifically upon conquering the land as Moshe stipulated with them, if you will fight before God and the land will be conquered before God, then this land will be his inheritance for you. Why is one contingent upon the other? Why is settling or inheriting this land east of the Jordan contingent on them going into Israel and fighting the battles? Again, that seems to be an obvious answer because Moshe wanted to make sure that they weren't 
chickening out as it were, or, or deflating the confidence of the other tribes. Imagine if, you know, it, you know people, there's, uh, there's a, sort of like a herd mentality in many things. If you have a group of people that, that are going to do something and two people pull out, it's very easy for more people to pull out. You with me on this? The, the huh? half of Menashe eventually joined them as well. So you know, I have, have sort of like... You know, I have Menashe. That's a... So, once, but, uh, let me finish with that. I want to get back to that. So, essentially, Moshe was concerned that if you have two of the 12 tribes, a lot of people who are like, yeah, but, oh, we're going to stay here. Y'all keep on going. Then more tribes are just going to pull out. That was his concern. And so, obviously, them fighting was a way to instill confidence or to demonstrate confidence and instill confidence in the rest of the tribes. But again, he's asked the question, two questions he asks here, which are in order to open up a spiritual conversation. Number one, um, why did they specifically want that land? And number two, why was their settling of that land contingent on them going into Israel? Both have simple answers in the text, but we're looking for a spiritual interpretation. I want to get to what you said, Oded. Um, ultimately, Moshe says to Reuven and God, what happened to Zoom? Oh, it's still here. Uh, ultimately, Moshe says, Moses says to these two tribes, uh, you have a deal, but one more caveat. I'm putting, this is Moshe. Moses says, I'm going to take half the tribe of Manasseh and also settle them here as well with you guys. Why? He didn't trust them. Who was Manasseh historically? Son of Yosef. Who was Yosef? Yosef is someone who always identified with Israel. So to give you, um, we'll do this very quickly because we're right at the time now. Just very, a very quick insight into this. When Moshe, when Moses, uh, who, who was born in Egypt, remember when he had a runaway because uh, he killed the Egyptian? And so he runs away to Midian and he goes to the well where the shepherds are and they were harassing these young women who were shepherds and he comes to the rescue and then the girls say to them, they go home and they say to their father, Yisro, Jethro, they say, oh, he's like, why are you guys home so quickly today, so fast today? What happened? Oh, well, this, 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 uh, they say this Egyptian man helped us. They refer to Moses as an Egyptian man. What about Yosef? What about Joseph? Remember when he was in uh, working for Potiphar and Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him and he rebuffed her advances? Remember this? And then she tells her husband that he assaulted her. What does she call him? Ish Ivri, a Hebrew. Which means that Yosef always wore his, I don't know, his Israeli nationality, as it were, on his sleeve. Now the truth is you could say, well, because he was born there as opposed to um, uh, Moshe, who was born in Egypt. I get that. But nonetheless, Yosef is always very strongly connected with Israel. When Yosef dies, he tells his family, bury me here in Egypt, but when, I, but when, you, when, when y'all leave, take me with you. And so Moses, on the night of the Exodus, he's searching around for Joseph's remains, which leads ultimately to the golden calf, which is a story unto itself. But the point is that Yosef is very strongly connected with, with, uh, with Israel, with um, this pride in Israel this desire for the Holy Land. And therefore, Moshe says to Reuven and God, I'll leave you guys here, but I'm also putting Menashe here. Menashe is the son, the oldest son of, of Yosef, that tribe. Putting half that tribe here also to keep you guys honest, to make sure that you guys are all going to stay <laughs> focused on Israel and, uh, and support Israel and not 
kind of forget about your roots. I'm going to make sure that there's, uh, there's someone here with you that I know guaranteed is always going to remember where they come from or where, they, where, they, where, you know, where their heart really is. Um, and I think this is, sorry? To those tribes? Uh, that's a good question. What happened to them? I think eventually they, I don't know, I don't think they ever like stayed forever outside. I think eventually they got a, a bit absorbed in, or maybe the borders kind of absorbed them. The tribes are mentioned. I mean, the tribes, I don't think, ever went away, but I guess, I don't know, it's a good question. They were the first ones. Were they not part of the Northern Kingdom ultimately? I think, I think they were, yeah, because the Northern Kingdom was the, was the ten tribes, and that would include, that would include them, yeah. So either, either they kind of, you know, moved in or the borders kind of wrapped around. I, we would have to look up those, fine, it's a good question, look up those finer points. Um, but I think that, you know, this takes us full circle the idea that Menashe was put there to never forget Israel. The great uh, poet, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, uh, who lived in Spain, in the golden age of Muslim Spain, so he wrote, Ani, what do you say, Ani b'mayra v'libi b'mizrach? Something like that, am I paraphrasing? Is that? It says, I am in the West, but my heart is in the East. And I think just coming full circle, that this is certainly where we are today, um, literally today at this moment, that we're in the West, but our hearts in the East, praying for the safety and security of Israel and for all of our brothers and sisters and for, um, for, for only blessings and peace and security. And uh, may Hashem really shine um, His favor. May God shine His favor down upon everyone and, uh, and send blessings. And uh, may we hear only good news, let us say, Amen. Amen. So in conclusion, today's session, just so we don't lose the plot. Today we spoke about two personas. Yaakov and Yisrael, Jacob and Israel. I asked the question, classic question, why is it that once Jacob's name is changed, why does the Torah itself revert back and forth between the two names? Um, and I explained the, based on Kabbalah, the answer is, one of the answers given is that these represent two types of divine service. The service of the struggler, Jacob, and the service of the conqueror, Yisrael. The one who's still enmeshed in the battle and the one who has conquered the battle. And I said, although it seems like when you conquer the battle, you're on a higher level because now you want to do it. Now there's no tension. There's no struggle. There is an advantage to the second, to, to the struggler. Why? Because the struggler is doing, when, when the struggler does the mitzvah, it's because he or she is surrendering. And that's a pure offering. Pure. It's a, it's a full offering to God. It's all about God. As opposed to when we're excited about doing, when we've conquered the um, the, 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 the negative feelings toward him. When we want to do it, so it's beautiful, but there's a little bit of ego intertwined with that spiritual pleasure versus spiritual surrender. And then after that introduction, we got into the opening verses that the discourse is based on. talks about the request of Reuben and God to possess the land on the east side of the Jordan. We explained the deal that they struck with Moses, and we asked, why is it that they wanted that land, and why was it contingent upon them going into Israel? We're going to look at this on a spiritual level. Next week, we're going to get into, literally, if you see on the, on the, on the, on the page over here, it says Yaakov and Yisrael. We're literally going to get into what we discussed today, and then expand it further. Ultimately, we're going to explain that there are three personas. A child, a... Um, there's the child, there's the Eved Ne'eman, Faithful servant, the, the child, a faithful servant, and then the simple servant. 
And that is going to, those are going to be three personas in our spiritual service, roughly correspond to these two dimensions, which we will elaborate on in subsequent sessions. Thank you all for joining me today. One quick announcement that I think is very relevant and important. Um, and that is that, look in your booklets, please, if you don't mind. These are programming booklets. Um, as you can see, oh, first of all, before I do this, a special thank you to David and Sarah Leon for helping sponsor today's Kabbalah Cafe. Thank you very much. Yashakoach. And coming up Wednesday, take a look at this right here. Wednesday, we have Rabbi, Dr. Label Wolf, Australian mystic, mentor and author, who's going to be in town uh, one night only, Wednesday, October 18th, 7.30 p.m. A topic that we chose six months ago is in a fractured world, you need to change your headspace, strengthen your resilience with spiritual training skills of meditation and positivity. This is a topic I chose months ago and it could not be more relevant today. With everything going on and all the stress and justifiable stress and confusion that we're feeling, how can we remain centered and remain positive and remain focused on what we need to do to strengthen our mind, to strengthen our headspace, to foster uh, personal wellness and spiritual wellness. This will be the topic of Wednesday's presentation, Rabbi Wolf himself has children and grandchildren that are in the war right now, that are on the that are that are in in the IDF, Sahal, and so certainly this is this is a, he, it will be related to everything going on here. It's going to be a very inspiring and uplifting and powerful presentation. Please join us. He is tremendous. Wednesday evening, October eighteenth, seven thirty p.m. All right, that's all the news is for the print. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Um, so it dep- I have a phone call with him tomorrow. I'm going to discuss whether or not we can live stream. It will be recorded either way. The live stream, I need to uh, find out from him if he's comfortable with that, uh, both conceptually and logistically, if we can do that. Um, one of the challenges with the live stream is just technical thing is if he's, if he's a pacer, then we're going to have more of a challenge. If he doesn't mind standing, so I will, I will let you... Definitely. Oh, you can definitely get the sound. Yeah, we'll 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 try to create some sort of. Uh, alter, um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm working on it. You're not. It's not the first request, <laughs> Larry. Also, there's a few a few requests out there. We'll see what we can make happen. Great to see you guys. Choose the food this week. Yeah. Yeah. Can we get the menu before we choose if we want to come or not? No faith. <laughs> Trust. <laughs> Good. Great to see you guys. Dr. Maxi, Matt, good to see you. I missed your call. Today. Give me a call today. All right. Good. good. Question. Yes, Susan. Where do we get your these talks? Again, besides, do we have to go on SoundCloud? They're very hard to find. So I try to make it as difficult as possible just to see how committed y'all are. I'm kidding. No, that's a joke. That's a joke. You're um, doing an I gevald. I hope not. I hope I'm not doing a great job. See you guys. Hey, Waverly. You could leave it, or or you can take it. Yeah. 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 Yes, I have a new podcast. It's called Torah Unraveled. Wait, can you put that? Yeah, I'll just write the name of it. Um, it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that jazz. So it's you just. Just type, just type this in, Torah Unraveled, and that's it. It should come up. I'll show you what it looks like, the logo, so you make sure you're getting the real deal and not some knockoff Torah Unraveled. I Spotify link in the chat. Oh, thank you very much. And I have, a, I have Pocket Cast, which is an app on Android for my podcast. And this is... 
I know I have my podcast here somewhere. This is what it looks like. Um, the logo looks okay. like that. It'll have, it'll have your your different classes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So right now the last ones that are up there are the High Holiday Boot Camp that we did a few weeks ago. Okay. And then there's like the previous Kabbalah Cafe sessions and um, we did a Hebrew course. We did a class on business ethics, all of that. Yeah. It, it basically goes um, chronologically and sequentially. So that's what it looks like on uh, this Spotify. Yeah, I mean, you'll find it. You'll this find is it. great news. This is great news. Okay, I, I'm connected. All right, awesome. Susan, great to see you. Welcome back. But listen, even though you can catch it later, I love when you're live. It's better than catching it later, all right? Yeah, and maybe I'll come and eat some breakfast. Oh, even better. Absolutely. Yes, we definitely have breakfast for you. All right, thank all right. you. Good to see you. All right, great to see you guys. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov, yes. Chodesh Tov, Shavuot Tov. Lots of blessings. We share good news. Take care. See you guys.